Well, when, uh, when I was growing up, my, my parents are pretty awesome parents. I have good parents, and uh, they always made a great effort to make Christmas especially special for us. Uh, that, that would be a, a special day, a unique day that would come with a, a lot of memories for my brother and I. And um, they would you know, try to get the perfect gifts, and they, they did a great job getting the perfect gifts. They would come down in the middle of the night, and they would set up our, our living room and get it all decorated and, and looking nice. And seemingly every year without fail, my mom would always warn us before Christmas, hey, Christmas isn't going to be that, that great this year. I know you have some expectations, but you need to tamp them down a little bit. Um, things are a little bit rough or, or they're different, so um, tamp down your expectations. And uh, every year it was great, uh, regardless of how she tried to prepare us. Well, I remember one year it was maybe 9 or 10. Uh, I woke up early in the morning like uh, we always did, like most other kids do, and my kids should never do, and <laughs> ran downstairs and uh, got my parents up and started opening up gifts. And my first gift that I opened up was a, a pair of socks. And I'm sure you know how kids always love getting socks. Well, this wasn't just any pair of socks. This was a pair of socks that I was quite familiar with, a pair of socks that I had worn many times before uh, with, with holes and the old sock smell and, and all. Uh, and I continued to open up gifts and open up more old socks and more uh, VHS movies that we already had, that I had seen several times over and over and over again. Um, and I'm, I know that my parents gave us other gifts that were gifts that we hadn't worn or, or watched before that year, but that's all I remember, is just the old socks and the old VHS, Five Goes West, right? Um, that was my memory from that Christmas, and it was a, a great Christmas. But I tell you this story to... Um, to remind us that we've been going through the, the book of Joshua, uh, looking at uh, Joshua and really recounting this story of how God has given this gift to uh, this promised land generation that's going in, but it's a gift that they had already received. This land was already theirs. God had given this gift to, to Abraham all the way back in uh, Genesis. He had promised this to, to his faithful child to his faithful servant Abraham and to his son Isaac and Jacob. Uh, already several times throughout the book of Joshua, we've seen that God has promised Joshua, this is your land, that you are going in to take possession of this land that I have already given you. I've already um, given it into your possession. You just need to go in and, and, uh, and conquer it and actually take the land for yourself. It was already their land. Um, and in the, the first 12 chapters or so of Joshua, we see how God has um, given them this land, how they've gone in, and we see the, the conquering, the taking of this land. Generally, from, from south to north, they went in, and they took this land for themselves as a, a possession for themselves. And uh, now they need to go, and they need to divide this inheritance amongst themselves. And I really want us to focus on that word, inheritance, because we're going to see it all throughout the, the chapters that we're going to be looking at. Inheritance is a, a common word, a, a often repeated word in these chapters. Uh, again, this land was already promised to them. It was already theirs. They just had to, to go in and uh, unwrap the bow, so to speak. They had to go in and uh, make it theirs. And it was, in fact, gifted by God. It was their inheritance. And we can see God's involvement in giving this land to them very clearly all throughout the book. Back in chapter 5, remember, Jesus was... 
identified as the, the commander of the army of the Lord. He's not with them. He's not against them. He is commanding. He is leading that army. We saw in uh, chapter 6, Jericho falling, right? Because Israel walked around. Lest they get uh, big and, and puffed up in their own minds thinking they did something. Uh, no, it was God who handed uh, Jericho over to them. And just to, again, solidify the fact that it was God, in the very next chapter we see that um, they failed when they went up against Ai in their own strength. That when God was not with them, they were unable to take that. We see God uh, stopping the sun. We see God throwing down boulders from the sky. God is um, the one who is behind all this. It is his gift to his people and his inheritance that he is giving to his people. They're not going in and dividing the spoils of the land that they have gotten just from, from conquering the land. They are dividing an inheritance that is in fact a gift from God that he has given to them. Let's look in, in Joshua 14 and look at the first couple of verses. Again, we'll see this word inheritance pop up. Joshua 14, verse 1, says, Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance, by the lot of their inheritance, as the Lord commanded through Moses for the nine and a half tribes. So though... Uh, Joshua and the priests and the elders, they were the ones who were apportioning this land. Let's not misunderstand that God is, in fact, the one who is giving this land to them. God is the one who is behind uh, this uh, whole lot-casting um, procedure that they're going through. We see that the, the land that his, these tribes are going to end up with corresponds with what um, Israel said. That is uh, Joshua, whose name... or Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, um, he had a portion to his line back in Genesis 49 that certain tribes will, will rule over other tribes and other tribes will be less prominent even though they are uh, preeminent in their birth. This has, uh, it's, it's not just coming to fruition now because of the, the cast of the lot, but it has been uh, established even before time. And even throughout this our text this morning, we're going to see references to how Moses had uh, given instructions to a, a certain degree to certain people to go in and to take a certain allotment of land that has been given to them. And so once again, uh, we have to remember Proverbs 16.33 that says that though the, the, lot, is, the lot is cast in the, the lap of a man, it's every decision is from the Lord. Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, is the one who has given this land into the hands of these tribes who are going into. Um, they've already taken possession of it. Now they're dividing this inheritance, not the spoils, but dividing this inheritance amongst themselves. And in the last chapter, chapter 13, we saw how the, the two and a half tribes, they were given their inheritance, how Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they were given their allotment of land. And in these next, we're going to cover four chapters today, not in depth, um, from a very high view. We're going to look at uh, chapters 14 through 17. In these chapters, we're going to look at how God gives Judah and, and Joseph, the, the tribes of Joseph, their inheritance. And um, we have to keep in mind that the major theme of this section is, in fact, how God is providing the land that he has promised, how he is apportioning their inheritance to them. But as we're doing that, we're going to take a, a look at some specific details within these chapters and 
uh, see if we can make some application to ourselves as we do that. So let's take a look, at, first of all, at, at Judah's inheritance. In the first two chapters, we'll be looking at in Joshua 14 and 15. We'll read about Judah's inheritance. And starting off in 14.6, we're going to get a, a picture, a glimpse at uh, a representative of the tribe of Judah. We're going to look at Caleb and his inheritance. And he is just one of uh, many families who are going to receive an inheritance. And uh, the, the text chooses to focus in and, and zoom in on Caleb and look at his inheritance. So let's read in uh, 14.6. It says, Then the sons of Judah drew near to, near to Joshua in Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord, my God, fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now, we took a, a little glimpse of that or a little bit earlier when Jeremy was reading for us from number 13. We saw how Caleb went in. He said, this is the land that God has given us. And he spoke up and he, he quieted the people down. He said, we're going to go in. We're going to take that land. And these other people, they stood up and they, they rebelled against uh, Caleb. Well, let's take a, another look at Numbers 14. Numbers 14, and let's look at verse 24 and see what we see about Caleb there. Numbers 14, 24. And here it says, But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. And then just a, a little while later in verse 30, we see that it says, Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So these two men, Caleb and Joshua, they were the, the holy righteous men, two of the twelve who came back with a, a good report saying, this is not just a, a decent land, not just a good land, this is an amazing land, a land that truly is flowing with milk and honey. They had these enormous grapes that they brought back, and they said, this is a fantastic land. We should go in and we should take it as a possession for our own. And yet, uh, we see the, the strong influence and the strong persuasion of the, the other 10 people. It's hard to believe how strong and powerful that, that influence can be, that they were able to overcome the, um, the greatness that they saw. They too went in and they saw the the great land that was flowing with milk and honey. They saw these uh, big fruit. They saw the, the blessing that God had provided, that he had said, this is your land, you go in and take it. They not only saw it with their own eyes, but they had the promise themselves from God. And yet they were overcome with fear, with terror and dread because of the, the giants that they saw in the land. And they were able to influence the, the rest of the, the country, all of Israel, to not go into the land. And because of their influence, they ended up wandering around in the desert. However, uh, throughout all of this, Caleb was faithful. Caleb remained resolute, and he was determined. He wasn't swayed when he was outnumbered by these other 10 spies, and it was just he and, and Joshua who said, no, this is a good land. We should trust our God. We should go in after it. Even after 45 years, 
Caleb wasn't swayed. Caleb still was faithful. Caleb still trusted in God. And he wanted to go in and take that land for himself as a possession. And look back at at verse 6. We see that at the end of verse 6, as Caleb is talking to Joshua, he says, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. He is appealing to Scripture here. He's talking to Caleb. He says, you know what God said to Moses, which is pretty incredible. It's amazing. It's incredible that you and I, we have the words of God in our Bible and we can point to and we can say, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says right here. This is what he wants for you. This is what he wants for me. This is how we can know the mind of the Lord. But for Caleb to be able to look to Joshua and say, you were there and, and you know what the Lord said to Moses and what he commanded. He said that this is my land. He's appealing to scripture and this is uh, incredible that he can go back and uh, do this on a, a first-hand uh, basis. He was an eyewitness to this. And what's even more incredible to consider than this is the fact that uh, he was a Kenizzite. We saw that back in, again, verse 6, that Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said this to, to Joshua, thus saith the Lord. Well, the fact that he was a, a Kenizzite uh, indicates to us that he in his heritage, isn't Jewish. He doesn't have the same lineage as the rest of Israel. He doesn't proceed from the the loins of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, Uh, but he was grafted in. He was brought into the fold by faith. Let's look at Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. Genesis 15, 18. And here in this very same chapter that God promises this land to to Abraham. It says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite and the Kenizzite, that's where Caleb is from, the Kenizzite and the Ketamite, and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim, and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. This is the land that God had given to Abram, later Abraham. Um, All these people who dwelled in this land, they were dispossessed, or they were to be dispossessed. And this is the lineage of Caleb. He was one of the Kenizzites that was to be dispossessed from this land, but yet he was adopted into Israel. He was welcomed in as family. He was grafted in, um, welcomed by, by faith, similar to how Rahab was welcomed into the family. She was seen as an Israelite, even though uh, her genealogy, her ancestry was not Jewish. Well, let's continue on in our, our text um, down in Joshua 14.10 and see um, how Caleb comes into possession of this land. Joshua 14.10, now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now, for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day that the Anakim were there, with great fortified cities, perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Caleb, this 85-year-old man, uh, now wants to go in and take possession of this land himself. 
Now remember, this is hand-to-hand -hand combat. He's not going in with drones and, and airstrikes, not with tanks and submarines, right? He's going in uh, old school. He's going in up close and personal on their turf in their fortified cities uh, to take this land for himself. Caleb was pretty hardcore. An 85-year-old who was going in, uh, he was a real deal, wanting to take this land for himself. He definitely doesn't buy into our, our modern concept of retirement, just sitting back and uh, doing nothing. He's not playing bingo or, or watching Jeopardy or his soap operas. No, he's out there and uh, taking this inheritance upon himself. He's going in to take this land for himself. And notice he waited 45 years for this land. He says, Joshua, God has promised me this land. You were there, you heard God. This land is mine. It's been 45 years. I'm 85 years old and I want to go in and I want to take it. That's pretty amazing. That's great patience that's displayed by, by Caleb to wait 45 years on the Lord. Um, I think we have a hard time with that sometimes, don't we? To realize that God does things in, in his timing. And often that's over the course of a lifetime. Uh, we see that here with Caleb. He's a, a perfect example that God told him, yes, this is your land. And 45 years later, he's finally going in to take possession of it. Uh, we see this with Israel as a whole. Again, it was over 500 years ago that God first made this promise to Abraham that, yes, this is your land. Um, I'm, I'm gifting it to you. And again, 500 years later, uh, this promised land generation is now going in to take possession of it. It's going to be a, another 400 years um, that Israel is going to have to put up with, with judges with uh, no king until David comes on the scene and uh, kind of offers some, some leadership and starts to take over some other territories that they, they left behind. He needs to clean up a little bit. Another thousand years after that until Jesus comes on the scene. And even then, they don't have full possession. Even now today, while Israel is in that land, which in itself is a miracle, they still don't have possession, full possession of all that uh, they, they are allotted, that God has allotted to them and God, that God has promised to them. And uh, we don't have time to go there today, but it'd be an interesting study if you want to check out Ezekiel 48. Ezekiel 48 goes through this same uh, kind of thing, talking about the, the land and how it's going to be apportioned to these different tribes in eternity, uh, in the millennium, that Israel is going to take possession of this same land. And we see this not only in the, the life of Caleb, not only in the life of Israel, but we see in our own lives that God works in, in his own timing. And oftentimes it's slower than what we would want. Uh, we've been going through church history in Sunday school, and through this little uh, four-week sprint through church history. We're not going to have the time to look at Augustine, but perhaps you know the story of Augustine and how he grew up and he was uh, rebellious um, by his own admission. He was uh, a wayward son, and his mother, Monica, loved the Lord, and she wanted him to, to know the Lord. She wanted him to, to be saved, to have a saving uh, relationship with the Lord, and so much so that she enrolled him in a, a cataclysm catechism class when he was young, um, that uh, when he came home and he had embraced uh, Manichaeism, some uh, Gnostic type of cult. We talked about Gnosticism this morning. He had embraced a, a section of that. She kicked him out of the house. She said, no, you're not welcome here because that is not Christian. She fasted for him often. She prayed for him daily. And she thought, well, surely he's, he's wayward. Um, but she had 
faith in, in God. She continued to pray for him. And now he is a, an absolute giant of, in the faith. He is a, a preeminent theologian and philosopher and bishop. And he's contributed so much to, uh, to our Christian history, to where we are today. God doesn't always work in our timing, in our estimation of how he should work. And I think that we need to remember that when we're praying for people, um, just like Monica remembered uh, to, to be faithful, to continue to pray for her son. Uh, I know that myself, I can grow weary and I can um, kind of cast somebody off and think, okay, well, maybe, maybe the Lord doesn't have that person in mind. Maybe that's not for that person, but let's be faithful in continuing to, um, to take people before the Lord, realizing that God works in his own time and he does things in his own pace, um, just as he did in the life of Caleb. 45 years, that's a long time to, to wait on God. But Caleb was faithful um, to, to wait upon the Lord because he knew that his God was faithful. Uh, let's keep, keep reading here in Joshua 14, 13 and see what uh, Joshua's response is to Caleb. He said, I want to go in, I want to take this land. And here, uh, verse 13, it says, So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was full, formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. This is a, a bit anticlimactic in, in my estimation. It just says that Caleb wanted to go and take the land, and then he took it, and it was his. And it even references the, the Anakim. Uh, remember back from Numbers 13 that we referenced earlier, the Anakim were the giants that prevented Israel from wanting to go and take this land in the first place. The giants that um, caused these ten spies to, to tremble and to uh, shake in, in fear, despite the, the great promise of the land that was flowing with milk and honey. And Caleb just went in and, and dispossessed them. <laughs> and that's pretty much all we have in, uh, in this account, um, which is amazing and speaks to, uh, again, Caleb's faithfulness and the faithfulness and the power and the strength of his God. Now we're going to skip over a, a few verses here that's going on. It's talking about some of the verses that, or some of the cities that God had given to, to uh, Joshua, or to Judah rather. Um, but let's pick up in, in verse 13 of chapter 15. And we'll pick up the story about Caleb. It says, Now he gave, that is, Joshua gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahimai and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Deber. Now the name of Deber formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And what I want us to see in these verses is that, once again, Caleb, he was willing to work for this land. He went in and he did this work himself. He dispossessed them himself. Um, let's keep going just a, a little bit, picking up in verse 16. It says, And Caleb said, the one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenes, the brother of Caleb, captured it, so he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. 
It came about that when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? Then he said, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So we see a, a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, we see that Caleb was willing to, to delegate this task out to somebody else. He wasn't afraid to go in and to take this land for himself, which is a good thing, but he also wasn't afraid to, to delegate, to realize that um, if he wanted to truly be a, a wise man, which he was, and he was a, a savvy businessman, that he wanting to seek a, a multiply on his return of investment, he was going to employ somebody else to go in and to, to do this for him. And so he promised whoever did this, his, his daughter Axa, and she truly was a prize. She wasn't a, a burden. He wasn't trying to pawn her off on somebody else, um, but she was worth fighting for because like her dad, she was also thoughtful and wise. She was business-minded. She was looking toward the future. And we can see that in the fact that she's looking for this land that she's going to take and she's going to uh, possess. She tells her, her husband, who again worked for the land, Othniel, um, to, to ask for this land. And I think that's important. We have to notice the, the approach that she takes. She doesn't demand this land. She doesn't think that it is <clears throat> somehow owed to her. She's not entitled to it. Uh, but she tells her husband, well, you worked for, for me. You did this for my father, so why don't you ask for this land? And again, in her, her wisdom, she knew that the land also needed water. And so she asked her father again, not out of a sense of entitlement, but she asked, will you bless me? It says in verse 19, give me a blessing in this water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs as well. <clears throat> so we see that uh, she was willing to work for the land as well, that her husband worked for the land just as uh, her father worked for the land that he had been given as an inheritance. And she, like her father, was, was wise and, and business-minded in the fact that she was looking forward to the future and trying to make plans for the future. <clears throat> Well, <clears throat> the rest of the chapter goes through and it really summarizes how God has apportioned different cities to the rest of Judah. Remember that Caleb was just a, a representative. He was just one family um, and even a, a foreigner family who was brought in, who was welcomed into the fold at that. So this goes through and it talks about many different families, many different tribes who were given different cities and lands that they would take possession of in this uh, region of Judah. And I just want to summarize part of it. Uh, we see in verse 20, it says, this is the inheritance of the tribes of the son of Judah, according to their families. Uh, jumping down to verse 32, you can kind of just glance in your Bible. It won't be up on the screen. Uh, it says, in all, there were 29 cities with their villages. 33 says, in the lowlands, Eshtael, and Zora and Ashna, and it goes on like this, lots of cities that are hard to pronounce. Uh, down in verse 41, uh, summarizes by saying 16 cities with their villages. Verse 44 says nine cities with their villages. 48, in the hill country, Shammer and Jatir and Saka. In 51, 11 cities with their villages. 57, 10 cities. 59, six cities. 62 cities. 62, six cities with their villages. And in all, uh, Judah ended up being the, the greatest chunk of, of land that any of the tribes received. And they had over 100 cities that they were given as a gift. 
that they didn't go in and they didn't have to build up these cities. They didn't have to build these houses, but they went in and they took possession of this as an inheritance. The Lord had given them over 100 cities to take as their own possession. Now let's look at the last verse of the chapter in verse 63. It says, now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. So the Jebusites remain there. Now remember, God had promised them this land. This was already their land. God had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down to Joshua, go in and take possession of what I have already given to you. It is yours. And yet, they didn't take it, which means that they never truly tried. Either God was a liar, which he's not, right? He's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Or Israel failed to go in and truly take possession, to truly... uh, go after this city as they were instructed to. They grew content. They grew complacent. They grew comfortable. They had uh, this great land flowing with milk and honey. They had these hundred plus cities and they thought, you know what, that's, that's good enough. I don't want to go in. I don't want to work for more. And so they left Jerusalem occupied by the enemy. And Jerusalem remained unoccupied by Israel for 400 plus years until David came in and he conquered it later on down the road. So uh, we see here in these first two chapters a summary of this inheritance that has been given to Judah. Now let's take a look at the next two chapters, 16 and 17. We'll see the inheritance that is given to, uh, to who am I talking about? To Joseph. Um, and again, uh, we have to go back and kind of remember our, our Old Testament history a little bit. In uh, Genesis 48, Joseph was given a a double portion, wasn't he? He was given a a double inheritance. And his father said, well, bring your two sons here to me, Ephraim and Manasseh, and I'm going to bless them. And in doing so, you're going to receive a double portion, a double inheritance. Now, hopefully we've been seeing that word throughout here, inheritance. This truly is a gift to Israel. Um, I want us to focus on another word, on the word border or boundary, as we're looking at... um, this next section. Um, I'm going to actually read a, a short clip from uh, 16, 4 through 9, and let's see if we can see that word boundary and border over and over throughout here. It says in 16, 4, that the sons of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. Now this was a territory of the sons of Ephraim, according to their families. The border of their inheritance eastward was Adaroth Adar, as far as upper Beth Haran, then the border went westward to Michmethah on the north, and the border turned about eastward to Tanath Shilah and continued beyond it to the east of Janiah. It went down from Janoa to Adaroth and to Nera, then reached Jericho and came out at the Jordan. From Tepuah, the border continued westward to the brook of Cana, and it ended at the sea. This is the inheritance of the tribes of the son of Ephraim, according to their families, together with the cities which were set apart for the sons of Ephraim in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. So um, that's about as much as I'm willing to read of all that, all those cities and names, again, that I struggle with. Uh, But if you continue to read down, you'll continue to see 
um, this word borders and boundaries and territories that God has set up specific parameters for these different tribes, that these are God-given um, boundaries, that these are good boundaries established by the Lord. And it's good for us to recognize that these, not just uh, physical, geographical boundaries, these territories are good and established by God, but any limitations that are, are put on not just Israel, but on us, we need to recognize as being established by God. When we are told what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, um, when we have been subjected under certain authorities, whether that be our, our employer or our city, our, our governments, our parents, our churches, um, I think it's good and healthy and right to recognize that God has indeed established borders and boundaries by his great uh, supremacy, by his great authority. And we should uh, recognize and embrace those rather than kick against them and acknowledge and submit to God given regulations uh, as such, because God does in, in fact establish boundaries and, and borders, and it's good and healthy to recognize uh, as much. Well, let's wrap up this chapter with this last verse. Let's take a, a look at verse 10. It says, once again, a familiar verse, but they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. Uh, let's jump down again to 17... 12 and 13, we see the same thing. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when the sons of Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. So Israel, once again we see, failed to come in and, and finish the job, to finish the task that God had given them. And we know that God has explicitly commanded them, you do not leave the Canaanites in the land. You need to drive them out completely. You need to go in and completely dispossess the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, all of them. They need to be gone. Uh, you can look back at Deuteronomy 22. They are told explicitly, do not leave them in the land. Uh, I'm, I'm telling my kids often um, that partial obedience or delayed obedience is disobedience. We need to remember that. Um, and we see here that there are um, real consequences of that. History has, has told us and proven that uh, complacency and, and procrastination in, in this respect can be deadly. Um, all you have to do is go forward and look at the, the first couple of chapters of, of Judges, and you see the, the drastic consequences of them failing to take out just this small portion of people. They were right there. They could have done it if they were obedient, but they were disobedient. Um, just as cancer spreads and metastasizes quickly. I know some of you have had cancer that you were able to find quickly and, and treat it and take care of it, and it's no longer a, a big issue for you. But if you let it spread and go untreated, it grows and grows and grows. Um, if you have a, a small little leak in your house, it can turn into a big problem, can it? I hate dealing with water issues in my home. Um, we just... We have some friends who recently bought a house and they had a little tiny drip in their bathtub and they didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it. And they had to end up ripping out the, the whole subfloor and go down in the basement and rip out all the, the drywall and it was all the, the insulation, a, a big, huge mess. And just started with a little tiny drip. Uh, a little leaven leavens a whole lump, doesn't it? And again, you can go and look at, at Judges and you can see the, the great consequence that Israel had for their 
their lack of obedience, for their partial obedience and their delayed obedience to God in fulfilling this task to completely drive out the enemies. Well, let's look at uh, verses 1 and 2 of 17. It says, Now this was the lot for the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, Manasseh was a son of uh, Joseph. We're looking at his inheritance here. The lot of the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, to make her the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, where allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. So the lot was made for the rest of the sons of Manasseh. Now get this, according to their families. Um, it was according to their families. It's not just a, a flippant um, giving of this land, inheritance of this land, but it was um, an adequate allotment, not arbitrary at all, but according to their families. Now, verse 3 is uh, an interesting verse. We're not really going to get into that, um, but that's a, a good study for later. We're actually going to jump down and skip down to verse 14. So, Joseph, we're going to skip over the next couple of verses up there. But let's look at um, verse 14 of Joshua 17. And we're going to, again, get a, a glimpse into the, the children of Joshua, or the children of um, so, many, so many J words. Uh, we're going to look at Ephraim and Manasseh here, in verses 14 and on. It says, Then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me only one lot, and one portion for an inheritance, since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed. Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, more, more giants, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The sons of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Beth Shean, and its town, and those who were in the valley of Jezreel. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only. But the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. And to its farthest border it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Now this in... Uh, in my estimation, I think, hopefully it's obvious to you, is, is quite a contrast compared to, to Caleb and his daughter who went in and they took possession of this land. They were willing to work for their land. They took initiative and they took responsibility to go in and to drive out those people who were possessing their land. Uh, and here, uh, it seems like Ephraim and Nasa, uh, those tribes are a little bit whiny, going and complaining, saying, we only have one lot of land. Uh, well, again, you look back in Genesis 48 and see, well, they don't only have one lot of land. In fact, they were given a double portion, a double blessing. Ephraim and Manasseh, they each have their own lot of land. And even beyond that, remember that Manasseh was split. The half-tribe of Manasseh, they already had a possession of land on the east side of the Jordan, over in the Transjordan territory. And so they, in fact, had a lot more land than most of the other tribes. In fact, let's throw that picture up there, Joseph, and take a look at this picture. And we'll see that um, all this colored area is Israel. And I don't expect you to be able to see and read the different cities, but that orange section, that's Manasseh. And that takes up probably a, a quarter of Israel. And then the purple section that's south of Manasseh, that's Ephraim. 
So I'd say that together, they probably take up one-third of all of Israel. And they're here whining and crying, saying, we only have one portion. We need more land. Joshua, what are you going to do? Why, why are you just giving us this one small portion of land? And then let's throw up that, that next picture that you have there, Joseph. This is a list of the population from Numbers chapter 1. And you'll see Judah has the most population there with nearly 75,000. And all the way down at the bottom of the list, 12th in population is the tribe of Manasseh with 32,200. They have the smallest population, the, the least amount of people within their land. And just above that is Ephraim at number 10 with 40,500. So you have all these other tribes who have a greater population with less land area, and they're not coming before Joshua complaining, saying, we need more land. Uh, and Judah, again, who has the greatest population, they do have the greatest population. Uh, area of land for just one tribe. However, uh, a lot of that land is just barren wilderness. So you could make the, the argument that the smallest tribe got the largest allotment of usable land. Um, and they're the ones who are grumbling and whining and complaining about it. But um, Joshua doesn't point this out. He doesn't give them a, a picture or a graph like I've given you and say, well, look at this. You, you really aren't the smallest, so stop complaining. But instead, Joshua answers these sons of Joseph according to their folly. He says, okay, well, if you want more land, if you're really the smallest, why don't you go work for that land? Why don't you go in and, and get that land? Let's look again at verse 15. Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, then go up to the forest and clear a space for yourself. There in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim it's, it's too narrow for you. If it's really too narrow for you, then go up and do something about it. Go and work for it. And then in verse 16, we see this grumbly, whiny response from the sons of Joseph. They said, the hill country is not enough for us. All the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are of Beth Shean and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Well, Beth Shean, that's an important city. Notice that city there in verse 16. That's the city that's mentioned up in verse 11. Let's take a look at verse 11, the same chapter. It says, In Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beth Shean and its towns. So God had already allotted Beth Shean and its towns to Manasseh. But Manasseh had failed to go in and actually take possession of this land because, again, there were Rephaim. There were giants in the land, and they were too scared. They didn't want to put in the work to do the effort to take what God has already given to them, what God has already blessed them. God hasn't left them lacking in anything. Remember, they are given this land according to the, the size of their family. God has apportioned this to them, and they have just failed to appropriate what God has apportioned to them. And then we see down in verses 17 and 18 um, that Joshua again tells them, if you want it, you need to go out and work for, for what you want. He encourages them that it's possible. And again, they still fail to do so. Even though God gave them this land, even though Joshua told them, yeah, go in and take it, just dispossess them. You are a powerful, mighty people. Go in and, and get the job done. And they fail to do it. And this land, um, like... Jerusalem went uninhabited by Israel for 400 years. Then David comes in and he cleans house a little bit and he actually takes possession of this land. Well, I want you to know that I spared you in not reading through all those cities and names. Even the ones that I read, I know I did a terrible job and I butchered them. Uh, there are a lot in there. 
And we just looked at a few of them. We just looked at some of the highlights. And I want to take a moment to consider what do these kind of obscure chapters from Joshua have to do with us? How can we apply and, and make this make any sense for us? What can we glean from these chapters? Well, I, I really do think that the contrast between Caleb and his daughter Aksa and, and Joseph's descendants, Ephraim and, and Manasseh, are, are pretty stark. The first two, they were willing to go in and to work for what they had. They weren't whining. They weren't complaining. They weren't entitled. And then Ephraim and Manasseh, who again make up the the lion's share of Israel as a whole, they come in and they whine and they complain and they grumble and they say, we need more. We need more. Give us more. One portion's not enough. Um, that's, that's pretty pathetic, really. And hopefully we can relate to that a little bit because we really do live in an entitled country. We live in a, a very entitled generation and society. And I would even venture to say that in my opinion, as time goes on, the generations are growing more and more entitled. Uh, we have this kind of mentality that, you know what, it's, it's owed to me. I deserve this. Not only is it owed to me by, by man, but God owes me something, right? That's the, the blasphemous, gross mentality that we can often find that we have. And we need to remember that we aren't owed anything, right? Entitlement is absolutely contrary to the gospel. The gospel tells us that all that we are owed, all that we deserve is eternal death. That is what is, is owed to us. That is what we are entitled to, is eternal punishment because we have sinned against an eternally righteous God, an eternally holy God. We know that we have no righteousness of our own. All of our righteousness is a bunch of filthy rags. There is none righteous, not even one. That we are just a bunch of dead men bones and a bunch of children of wrath who are enemies of God in all we deserve is, is the wrath of God. And like Caleb, we have no hope at all apart from the adoption of Christ, apart from being welcomed in as one of his own, apart from being welcomed in as, as his child and, and being grafted in by faith. Now, I don't want us to, to get confused. Make no mistake that, that Caleb was set apart from Ephraim and Manasseh and the fact that he was willing to go in and to work and to, to do the job. He didn't have the sense of entitlement that is owed to me. However, if we are to be right with God, if we are to be uh, distinct from those who are entitled, we must do so by our, our willingness not to work, by our willingness to admit that we aren't owed anything, that we are lowly and beggarly, and that we are in absolute need of a Savior, that we need His righteousness to be accounted to, to our accounts. And for, for you younger people, for you kids, you guys need to realize that you're not a Christian just because mom and dad are a Christian, that you're not right with God just because mom and dad brought you to church. It's a great thing that you are here. You have a, a unique blessing in the fact that your mom and dad want you to come to church, want you to know about Jesus. They want you to, uh, to worship him. But just because you're here in this church doesn't mean that you are entitled to, to being right with God. You're not right with God just because of who your parents are, because of where you're at. We all need to uh, make that decision for ourselves. We all need to know Jesus personally on a, an intimate, personal basis. And for those of you who are Christians, the, the bulk of us who are true believers in Christ, uh, we are absolutely not immune to this issue of entitlement. 
we can fall into the very same traps of thinking, well, God, God owes me something, right? That, well, after all, I am a child of God, so why is my life not better? Why, why are these bad things happening to me? We can fall into that trap. Even in a, a church that preaches the truth, that preaches good theology, we can uh, have that, that issue. But remember that Ephraim and Manasseh, they were grumbling and whining and complaining about a land that God had promised to them. That was their possession to go in to take. Um, and you and I as Christians, what are we promised? We're promised that in this world, we're going to have trouble, that we're going to have trials and persecution. Anybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And it is told that we need to persevere. We need to overcome. We need to endure hardship. We need to fight the good fight. That is what we're promised in this life. We shouldn't expect anything other than that. And we need to preach to ourselves whenever we get this sense of entitlement that we are owed more, that we deserve more. We're absolutely not. We deserve, we only deserve hell. We need to thank God for the fact that he considers us worthy to, to be punished as he was punished. That that is our, our purpose in life, to face persecution as he himself was persecuted. He is our teacher and the, the student uh, doesn't deserve any more than the teacher. They persecuted our master. They're going to persecute us as well. But in addition to that, Christian, child of God, we are promised an inheritance for the future. We are promised an inheritance that is eternally reserved for us in the heavenly places where, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. But if we are in Christ, we have today the indwelling Holy Spirit of God as a down payment, as a pledge of the inheritance that is promised to us that we will receive one day that is awaiting us in, in glory. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That is our, our job, our goal now, to become conformed to his image so that he would be preeminent among many brethren, and that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is our position in Christ. In this world, we will face trouble, but we can take heart because he has overcome the world. And we have, again, reserved for us that inheritance in the heavenly realms. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your goodness. You are a, a gracious God. And we are, in fact, undeserving. We are unworthy, just as Israel was unworthy. God, you alone are worthy. We thank you for the fact that despite who we are in our, our sin, who we are in the flesh, who we are in Adam, that you have made us into new men, that the old has passed away and the new has come, and that we can find ourselves in Christ. God, what a blessing. We thank you for the, the men and women who are going to uh, be baptized this afternoon to to demonstrate that, that uh, we have been crucified with Christ. Not only that, we've been raised again to a newness of life. God, help us to live our lives in that respect, that we wouldn't have a, a sense of entitlement about us. But we would realize that we are foreigners in, in this land. We are just here on, on mission. And we pray that while we're here on mission, that we would be faithful as your ambassadors. We would be faithful as your emissaries to preach your truth and to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received. Pray this in your name. Amen.